morning. We're going to be opening up the book of Romans this morning. I'm excited about that. It's a, it's a long book. It's uh, Paul's magnus, magnus opus. It's the uh, probably the, the most well-loved and most studied of Paul's letters. So we're going to uh, we're going to open it today. This is going to be really the opening or the introduction will probably be like this week and next week. And, uh, but I want to, I want to today to kind of introduce the situation, what was going on in, in, in the world at that time and what this meant for this congregation in Rome, which was essentially the center of the world. It's the seat of power. It is like, um, writing a letter to the church in Washington, D.C., but under quite different circumstances. So uh, let's pray, and then we will, we will open that up. I want to mention also one more thing uh, toward the end. There's all of our songs. All of our songs were about, about priesthood, basically, uh, all the songs that we've been singing and how we're offering ourselves, as Romans 12 says, offering ourselves as sacrifices, um, but one thing that will shed a great deal of light on what Paul says in this book is toward the end of the book in chapter 15, he says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. What kind? To the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what he seems to be doing here, and this is quite interesting, because he, he, what he seems to be doing is saying that this book is his priestly service, and by, by bringing the, the Jews and the Gentiles there in Rome into one body, in the service of God, he is offering up a sacrifice to God. That's an interesting concept, and it's where... It's where the, the church actually gets the notion, although we're pretty, uh, pretty reticent to use the term uh, in, our, in our Baptist con congregations, but it's where we get the idea that the pastors are to be priests. They are to offer their congregations up in, in uh, service to the Lord. So uh, anyway, I thought it interesting in light of the, the songs that we have been singing uh, to at least mention that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this day. We thank you, Father, for your word, the way that you, uh, the way that it quickens us because your spirit is all over it. Father, we're thankful for the way you've loved us and the way you've called us and the way that you've uh, chosen us and the way that you have glorified us and will glorify us in the future. Father, we thank you for uh, this. We pray that you would be at work here in our midst, and help me as I seek to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans, known as the Apostle Paul's most exhaustive presentation of the good news about Jesus, is likely the most loved of all his letters, and perhaps the most misunderstood in some cases. Scarcely a topic found in any other book of his is not touched upon or elaborated upon in Romans. The historically controversial doctrines of justification, predestination, election, glorification are all found here, all the Asians, 
And this book primarily is the battlefield upon which these theological wars have been waged over these doctrines. I believe, though perhaps it is misplaced, that many of these issues can be solved in light of a reading of it in relation to its situational character and the concerns that Paul was attempting to address related to the church at Rome. And through a reading such as this, that takes seriously the, the scriptural story of Israel as the field out of which the letter grows. As we have seen in Galatians, one, if not the main concern of Paul, was to see that what God had promised, he was indeed accomplishing. One God, through one Messiah, is creating one family of Jews and Gentiles. It is at once ecclesiological in that it is about who is the church of God? Who are the people of God? What is the composition of the church? Jew and Gentile, he would say. In other words, Jews and everybody else join together in one body. And it is eschatological in that God is doing what he promised as a culmination of all of scriptural history renewing the covenant made by Abraham to accomplish it. In other words, behind the letter itself and its doctrines that are often pulled out from its grand story, we find this story of what God has been doing and is doing in the world and with the world itself. And the goal of it all, as we will see in Romans 8, is the renewal of all creation as the new humanity in the Messiah. As the new humanity and the Messiah is finally revealed, he will say in chapter 8, at the resurrection of the sons of God. Blindness to this underlying story will leave many rough edges and obscure the message of the book. There was a historical concern of Paul that threatened to upend the realization of this vision of the restoration of all things and the renewal of the world happening in Rome. And once we realized what happened in Rome before the writing of this letter, we will more clearly see how Paul, by this grand letter, is attempting to keep the vision alive of a multi-ethnic people of God, specifically Jew and Gentile, in the important city of Rome. The very seat of power in the Roman Empire, in the place where another son of God was on the throne. I speak here of Caesar, Earlier, first century BC, the Caesars and their successors, whose images we were, were found on the denarius and other coins, you can see here, this is the, these are the coins, this is a denarius, they were commonly referred to as divine or sons of God. Julius Caesar, whom you have heard of, the instrumental figure in the transformation of the Roman Republic into the empire, was called Divus Julius, or Divine Julius, and whose adopted son Octavius, better known as Caesar Augustus, who we read about in the Gospels, was called Divi Luli Filius, son of the Divine Julius. In other words, son of God. This language, son of God, as you know, will very shortly appear in Romans, as Paul opens his letter to the Romans. Jesus, he said, 
is powerfully declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And one can't help but hear the metal-on-metal grinding when Paul deconstructs the kingship of Caesar, replacing it with a much older kingship of David, whose son Jesus is. And a Roman citizenry within that kingdom is replaced with a new citizenry of Jesus's kingdom, complete with inheritance, listen for it as we read it, inheritance and glory. What was the Roman Empire about? Inheriting the world, right? And glory, the glory of the Roman Empire. This is replaced very subtly, sometimes boldly, but often very subtly with the kingship of Jesus. We can hear these resonances at least as prominently as we read about the Christian's own sonship and adoption in chapter 4, specifically verse 13, where we're told that to Abraham was, uh, was given the whole world as an inheritance. That's what he says. Think about this in the context of Rome. What was Rome given? What were the Caesars given? The whole world by divine right, right? Not so. What Paul says is that to Abraham and to his descendants were promised the whole world. Jesus and his sons. In chapter 8, it is we who are in Christ Jesus who have received the first fruits of the Spirit who are called sons of God. Those who are the true, who are the true heirs of the world in the Messiah. In other words, and to put it bluntly, the good news of Jesus has a sharp, often political edge in this environment. For allegiance in that Roman world and this one belongs solely to God and his king in Jesus, who is the son of God, the rightful heir of the world. That's what it means to be Lord. And this ultimately was what Paul was calling the church, which was in Rome to, to become citizens in the kingdom of the son the one to whom rightly belonged the whole world. Now, if we think about the time in which Paul is writing, likely in the 50s, in the first century, in the 50s, some important things have happened, especially in Rome, which have had implications for the church there. In the late 40s, somewhere around 48, 49 AD, a large proportion of the Jewish population of Rome were forced, was forced to leave the city because of riots, possibly the result of Christian preaching there among the Jewish population. In Suetonius's Life of Claudius, who's one of the Caesars ruling during that time, we read, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from the city. Now, this is not a full explanation of why the Jews were expelled, and it may be that Crestus here is not Christus, but it seems likely that it is. And these uprisings had come about as a result of those who were in Christ, the Jewish believers, who were preaching among the Jews there, and it caused riots in the city. And all of the Jews, including the Christian Jews, were expelled from Rome. But even if it were unrelated to Christian preaching, both Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews would have been affected by this, and it would have had some serious consequences for the church. In AD 54, the order was rescinded, and this letter may have come soon after that. 
the Jews were allowed to return to the city and there would have been problems among the churches as a result, especially if there are, there are residual tensions between the Jews and the Messianic Jews, as we know existed in that time, and we know existed from reading Galatians, which we just finished. There were some Jews that came from James, as you'll recall, and they were trying to put them under the law. These legal issues uh, relating to the Mosaic law were, were in, full, um, in full view here as well. And a reintegration of the Jews into the church was to take place. Okay? Those of you who know how Jewish culture works know how all-consuming it is and how deviations from Jewish tradition by some who are ethnic Jews causes great upheaval in all areas of life. Jews becoming Christian Jews would have caused great turmoil within families and within Jewish society. By the way, this is what was meant in the Gospels when he said, I've come to divide families. Right? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, and it's going to split up families. This is, this is kind of foreign to us in Gentile, in Gentile context, but it's not foreign when you're in a Jewish context, because they will kick you out on your ear if you become a Christian. In fact, a great deal of this book assumes a need to deal with issues of what we would call Jewish ethnicity and its relationship to the covenant promises with Israel. Now think about this. So as, um, as we go through the week next week, run through Romans, begin to read Romans, and think about this. A great deal of this book assumes the need to deal with issues of what we would call Jewish ethnicity and its relationship to the covenant promises with Israel. Specifically, what happens to Jewishness as ethnic Israel is, is in the Messiah and is faced with violating old boundary markers, such as food laws and Sabbaths, as she becomes one body with Gentiles in the full, fulfilled covenant of Abraham. What happens? What happens when Jewishness is jettisoned for fellowship with Gentiles? Or how does Gentileness prior paganism and liberty of conscience in matters of food and drink and observances adapt itself as it seeks to live within the Abrahamic New Covenant blessings that historically belong to ethnic Israel. What does that look like? How do you deal with those who say, look, we can eat anything. What's wrong with you guys? And they condescendingly look down on the ethnic Jews whose consciences will not allow them to eat certain things. The book is full of those kinds of allusions and addressing, it addresses them specifically later in the book. We can see, for example, that in chapter 14 of the book, especially, there are issues relating to food and drink, unclean and clean, quintessential Jewish issues. Not Gentile issues, but Jewish issues. But they're, they're Gentile issues in the sense that they must learn to live in one body, in one fellowship with Jews. These issues reflect a desire to deal with Jew-Gentile relationships within the new creational framework of the gospel. And then working backwards within the book, chapters 9 through 13 have been a rehearsal of the story of Israel in an attempt to explain the way in which the inexplicable rejection of Israel's Messiah by her own people was mysteriously to be situated within the wisdom of God. 
and his plan to save the world through the renewal of the covenant made with Abraham and reaffirmed with Israel. So if you think about uh, chapter 9 of Romans, how does chapter 9 begin? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We're going to see that phrase over and over again. These are ethnic Jews that Paul is uh, torn over. These issues reveal a desire to deal with Jew-Gentile relationships. Issues of who are the people of God, right? That's a real question. Faced with Israel, who historically had the covenant, and Gentiles who believed in the Messiah, how do we, do, how do we define, or we should say, how does uh, Paul define the people of God? Or to put it another way, as he's going to say later, who is Israel? Who is Israel? How are they defined? Is Israel a, a, an issue that is by birth? Or is it not? Or is it those who are in the Messiah who are Israel? Those are some things that we'll address, and these are some things that Paul deals with in the book. It will help us as we seek to understand uh, the current uh, issues of eschatology, all of these systems of eschatology that you and I have all heard, dispensationalism, those types of things, these will be dealt with in the book. Hopefully, uh, hopefully things will become clear that have not been. Paul deals with these within the covenantal framework of Deuteronomy 30. This is a very important point. Everything within this book is dealt with not in terms of just raw doctrine, but in terms of new covenant. What happened, <clears throat> what happened historically in the first century with the coming of the Messiah? New covenant inauguration. A new covenant assumes that it arose out of the scriptural history, and that's what we'll deal with. In chapters 5 through 8, the story of mankind from Adam to Israel to Messiah is told within the controlling metaphor of exile and exodus. It also reflects Paul con Paul's concern that both Jews and Gentiles understand how the renewal of the covenant made with Abraham in chapter 4 through the obedience of the one man Jesus, the Messiah, 5 and 6, will result in the resurrection of all those who are in the Messiah and have his spirit. The non-ethnic people of God centered around Jesus and the spirit. This is what will be the result. The new creation we heard about at the end of Galatians, as Pastor Ryan brought out the concluding thoughts of Galatians. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. That's what Paul's going to repeat here in so many words. This makes an appearance again, and we should listen for it. And within this story, from Adam to Messiah in 5 through 8, Paul has to deal with the covenantal issue of the law of Israel. What was its purpose, and what role did it have within the purposes of God? Chapter 7. All of chapter 7 is consumed with that question. Now, why would any of this matter? 
And why am I telling you these things? As we have seen in Galatians and 1 Corinthians in our Lord's uh, Lord's Supper observance, this concern of the unity of the body is constantly on the mind of Paul. Because the breaking of the body threatens the very purpose of God in election. One family, neither Jew nor Greek, instead new creation. How easy it would have been to think that God had written the Jews out of the covenant altogether and to not welcome their return to the city or to the house churches. But in the good news that Paul was bringing, it was the power of God for salvation. In it, he says, is the power of God. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's where that phrase comes from, and that's why he uses it. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll look at some of those uh, the, the specific uh, ramifications of the covenant ordering uh, later on in the book, in chapter 15, he comes to the ordering of it. Like why? Why? He says, he says Jesus was a minister to the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles, right? And so we're going to look at that as we as we come to it. But this concern for the unity of the body is constantly on the mind of Paul. Why? Because as we saw at the beginning, he is the priest. He is he is like the high priest who is responsible for bringing all the unity of the body together, all the body together into one unity. Our popular categories of justification and soteriology, terms that we uh, must do business with within this letter, actually find their home within the scriptural story and the renewal of the covenant with Abraham in the Messiah's faithful obedience and representation. So these big terms that are often thrown around, often argued about, what is justification, what is salvation, what is glorification, what are all these nations, they must be dealt with in the context of the scriptural story and the renewal of the covenant with Abraham, which is brought about by the Messiah's faithful obedience and representation. And one thing that we'll see is that this actually helps us to dissolve some of the differences that have, that have come about in Protestant theology. Because we've all been kind of, we've detached ourselves, as some want to literally do, detached ourselves from the scriptural story. Once you hear Paul from within the story, not within some pagan kind of atmosphere, it becomes obvious what he's doing. And a lot of these differences will really just fade into the background. These particular doctrines find their clearest meanings, not within the individualistic framework of how does one get right with God, or further, further away still, how does one go to heaven when she or he dies, but by helping us understand what God is up to and has been up to since he created the world. Now, what I mean by that is that you can search, you can search all of Romans, which is the gospel, right? We can all agree that the gospel, this is what he's doing in, in Romans. He's preaching to them the gospel, and it's 16 chapters long. We can search and we can search, and he never says, how do you get right with God here? I'm going to tell you. Instead, what he does is he announces the good news about what God has been doing. And those who believe it then, they then come to share in, in the outworking of that. We'll return to that later. This notion 
of what has God been up to? And has God failed to do what he said he would do? Provide the impetus for Paul as he rehearses the story of Israel, the story of scripture, and the Messiah's centrality in that story. And we will see that these two things, what God has been up to, and has, and has God remained faithful to his covenant promises, specifically to Abraham, but also to Abraham's descendants, these two can be summarized by the term righteousness of God. We're going to hear that term quite a bit as we go through the book, righteousness of God. I'm going to repeat that. What God has been up to, and has God remained faithful to his covenant promises, or failed to be faithful to them, these can be summarized by this term, righteousness of God. God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promises. Okay? That is the righteousness of God. And we'll see this. This is also going to help, and it also will help to dissolve some of the, some of the issues that we've had about, about justification, really. And as Paul will say in the first chapter, programmatically, as all commentators have seen, in it, he says, that is, in the good news about Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed from, uh, from faithfulness to faith. That is, Jesus' faithfulness to our faith. Those in covenant membership with him will live by faithfulness. Right? Now, here's what I mean. It's probably not clear. What God has been up to, and has he done it in accordance with the covenant promises and the obligations under which he has placed himself, which we call the righteousness of God, is revealed in the good news. In other words, we come to see if and whether God has kept his promises and has he done it faithfully in what Paul is going to show us in the book of Romans, what he calls the good news, the good news about Jesus. Right? Because the good news about Jesus, about which we will learn, is fundamentally about God creating a new humanity that's not defined by ethnicity, but by faith in Jesus the Messiah, the whole letter is going to relate, at least tangentially, to these issues that arise from the aftershocks of such a bold purpose. What I mean is this. God is about making tribes tribeless. Okay? And that's what he's doing in this letter. He's making tribes tribeless, less tribal. Okay, we're seeing a, we're seeing, I'm going to get to this in just a moment, we're seeing a kind of a, uh, we're seeing a new tribalism basically pop up in the U.S. And, and everywhere really around the world. The world has never become um, fully tribeless. Um, but what Paul is doing in this letter actually is providing a way forward for us as we address issues within society, because that is exactly what the gospel itself is doing. God is creating one family, not by ethnicity, but by the faithfulness of the Messiah. The applications are obvious here, and we'll touch on them as we go along in the letter. But I want to address one thing that relates to our terribly distressed world and nation that can be dealt with with the good news of Jesus. But if the gospel is anything at all, it can address every issue in our broken world. Unless we've been under a rock, we can clearly see how the current plague of chaos and disorder brought to the surface by a physical plague that has spread throughout much of the world 
is rooted in a search for identity. I mentioned this some in Galatians, but I think it's very important to bring up here again. Though many of us don't realize what's happening at its deepest level, this is a search for identity. And everyone seeks to orient themselves toward their identity. It should have come as no surprise that when people began labeling others according to their ethnic identity and or skin color, and then assigning rights and privileges on the basis of those traits, that society could not bear the strain, and it will not. All of humanity deconstructs into warring tribes, especially when the political political class begins using these classifications in their pandering, playing, playing games and playing tribes off against one another for power and political gain. But here's the point. This very letter, and Galatians for that matter, and behind that the good news about Jesus the Messiah as Lord of the world address issues of identity where nothing else does. If there's anything in the world, if there's any place in the world where ethnicity and skin color matter not at all, it is in the church of God. This is the fundamental accomplishment of Christianity, though there are many who claim to represent Christianity and fail to see this as the impetus. But the very heart of God's intention is to create a people identified only by Messiah and faith in him. That's it. And this is why Jesus, this is why Paul says in, in Galatians that what matters is Messiah. That's it. Because in him we find our identity. Those who claim to be Christian may be tested against this rule. Do they attempt to further God's plan in the world to, to unite all tribes under Jesus' authority? Or do they seek to divide humanity into warring tribes again? Think about this as we, as we look on from a distance, hopefully at a distance, uh, at the, the splintering of the world into tribes again. And as you have opportunity, turn people's attention to questions of identity and tell them about Messiah, Jesus' identity. For it is he who defines us as God's new humanity and new creation. And this must be our message to a world that seeks more and more each day to splinter into tribalism again. Now, let's look for just a moment at the text of 1, 1 through 7, and we'll get back to it next week in earnest. I just want to touch on a couple of things, and, uh, and then we'll close for today, and then come back with the second part of the introduction to the letter. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of King Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the good news about what God has done, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, the one who is out of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God powerfully according to the Spirit of holiness out of the resurrection of the dead ones, Jesus, the King, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship unto the obedience of the faith among all the nations for the sake of his name, in whom you also are called of Jesus, Messiah King. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and our Lord Jesus, the Messianic King. In many, if not all, of Paul's letters, the opening of the book condenses the message of the book into just a few verses and then unfolds them throughout the book. Even Galatians 1, 4, though very compact, could be said to encapsulate in some way Paul's message to the Galatians, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. So we can see, we saw in Galatians that basically what Paul was doing is saying, look, you're wanting to put yourself in back in the old age under the law, which was basically a, a time of preparation. The law wasn't bad in itself, but it was, it was meant to pass away. You're wanting to get yourself back into the, this present evil age. Look, God has intended to bring you out of it. He's planned to put away the present evil age, and he does this by the cross, right? And this is what the whole book was about, essentially. He gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and our fathers. This is very condensed, compact, but this is what Paul is going to do in Romans as well. Here in Romans, the opening is a description of, number one, the sender of the letter, and the closing of the section tells us the recipients of the letter. Uh, the, the letter. This is um, these are verses one and seven, and then in between one and seven, you have two, two through six, and they're they're basically a, a condensing of the message that he's going to unfold throughout the book. It's not everything, but it's kind of the gist of what he's getting at. A highly condensed summary of the message of the book. How so? Let's look at it. We're not going to look at all of it today, but we'll look, come back and look at more next week. Verse 1, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We're going to talk about apostleship and what that, what that means a little bit later. Um, but here the focus is on the gospel of God, the good news, the evangelion of God. What does he mean? Whatever it is, it is gospel. It is good news. We'll see what it is, but it's important to see what it is not. It is not, as I mentioned earlier, you can go to heaven, you can be saved. Now these are the implications of it. This is the response of it. So when, when we hear the message and we respond, faith comes by hearing, he's going to say in chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ, he says, which is the word about Christ. So that when we hear it, the response then is followed by what happens when we believe, right? So, but that's not the good news. The good news itself is the proclamation itself about what God has done in Jesus. Okay? Everyone is interested in all of these other matters. We're all interested in how our sins can be forgiven. Are they forgiven? Um, can we, uh, are we going to enter into the resurrection, etc.? But the good news is the proclamation that all of these things are possible and that God has accomplished it in the Messiah. The good news is a proclamation about what God has done, quite simply. It's God's good news or the good news about God. As we saw in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus himself came preaching, what did he preach? The Gospel of God, right? The Kingdom of God. This is about what God is doing. It's not just about what Jesus is doing. Yes, it is, but this God is at the head, and this is his program in the world. The good news itself 
is the announcement about what God has done in the death and resurrection of the Messiah in accordance with his promises in the scriptures. That's what he says there. Thus much of this book, this book itself is the good news, the announcement of the full gospel of Jesus the Messiah. The gospel, as we'll see, is the proclamation of the new king, a faithful Israelite in whom the covenant with Abraham finally reached its climax. One who through his faithful obedience as son, unlike Israel, the other son, secured the world as his inheritance and on behalf of his people. And in advance of the final resurrection has begun to resurrect a people to share in this inheritance. So as you read in the coming week, I ask you to listen for the story behind the doctrines. This is not easy because we often will get sidetracked by the doctrines themselves and begin to ask questions about, you know, what does this doctrine mean? We must do that, but we must ask it within the story, the, the storyline that's behind it. The doctrines themselves are not created out of thin air, but grew out of the rich soil of Israel's scriptures. Next week, next week specifically, we will look at Son of God, what does this term mean? We've already looked at it a bit. And seed of David. Okay, this is also going to be very important, and these terms are actually related to one another. This is Messiah language. This is in verses 3 and 4. We're going to look at them as they relate to Messiahship in the hopes of recovering some of what has been lost in Protestant theology. And how resurrection will echo throughout the letter. That's what we're going to look at next week. How is it that resurrection, not just the final resurrection, but resurrection in all of its resonances, resurrection that has happened to you in the Messiah already, resurrection that will happen to us at the last day when God through his spirit raises us from the dead, how those echo throughout the scriptures on the basis of, throughout this book, on the basis of the resurrection of the Messiah. And finally, apostleship. Apostleship as an integral element of the covenantal promises and the extension of those promises to the Gentiles, not simply as a happenstance of first century church hierarchy. What is apostleship? We just kind of think of, well, they had apostles, right? They, they saw the Lord. But I will argue that these actually, uh, the, the whole term apostleship or apostle, actually finds its, finds its deepest meaning in the goal that God had for all creation as a result of Israel being his people and God calling a new Israel out of them and then sending them out into the nations. This is what we'll see. In, well, we might even go to the end of the book and look at how, how he views this. So in light of that, I'll close with this. Let us give thanks to God for his great power his mercy for calling us and his inscrutable wisdom and rejoice as he said in as he says in Romans 15 rejoice o gentiles with his people and again praise the lord all you gentiles and laud him all you peoples and again isaiah said there shall be a root of jesse there's david again 
and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a good encapsulation of where Paul is going with this book and what he intends to accomplish in it.